Welcome once again to the Grief Observed podcast. I'm your host, Brad Morell. If you want to be on the podcast to tell your story of grief, just contact me at griefobservedpodcast at gmail.com. We have been extremely busy recording. I've got four recordings to do today, so that kind of tells you uh, I've got a lot of people requesting to be on the show, but uh, don't hesitate to send me an email to tell your grief story. Uh, My guest today is Dr. Mary Rakowitz. Uh, Mary and I have been Uh, We've known each other for quite some time now, and uh, we connected a while back to, uh, you know, just get her on the show, and I appreciate her being here today. So, Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing not only uh, your your personal stories of grief, but also your uh, professional knowledge. Mary, why don't you uh, just tell everybody a little bit about yourself first? Well, um, I am a mental health therapist. Um, I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I've been in the mental health field this year will be 25 years. Um, Hard to believe. Yeah, it goes by quick, doesn't it? It does. It does. I've done a little bit of everything. I've worked inpatient. I've worked in outpatient. I've worked in, you know, with children, with adults, with addictions, with mental health. So I I have a a fairly good uh, variety of experience with mental health. Um, I have tended to work with children more over the years, and uh, and I and I do enjoy that. Um, I did specialize in addiction treatment when I was working on my doctorate, so that is another uh, another avenue that's close to my heart. Um, especially in, in in our area, we've had so many people affected by addiction, um, but I just really enjoy um, doing clinical supervision as well. I like having other uh, helping other people get their license because, as I tell my supervisees, I'm not doing this forever. Uh, and I need to yeah. make sure that we have people coming up behind me that can take over when I'm not working anymore. Kind of passing the torch be. type of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, just to make sure that we have some good people that are, you know, going to continue to do this when we're not. Um, you know, that reminds me of whenever I was in boot camp, um, the the guys training me, our division commanders, they they basically stated, they said, do you know why I'm doing this job? It's so people like you don't get people like me killed out in the fleet. And I'm like, it really was like a, a mind opening thing for, I was 20 years old at the time, but it's like people want to ensure that the people behind them are properly trained, you know, uh, able to, you know, like I stated, pass on the torch and know that this person's going to do a good job. So especially in the mental health field. I think that's super, super important because you and I both know there's good counseling out there and there's some not so good counseling out there. So I think it's great that you want to ensure that that, uh, that people are doing what they need to do to help others. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, that is one of my, my favorite things to do, but other than that, um, I love to read. Um, I have a, almost four-year-old hound dog um, who is laying here in his bed, even as we speak. <laughs> and, um, you know, overall, I I like to, I think I, we were talking about this before we started recording. I just kind of like to stay home and, you know, kind of relax. But um, I think that has to do with the work that I do too. I just need to disconnect sometimes and, and recharge. So. Yeah, I would say there's there's a lot of people in our field. Um, I, I'm not ashamed to say that I'm an empath. And, you know, when we take on the emotions of other people, especially during that hour that we're in front of them, it's uh, it can be exhausting. So I think it's important for us to be able to go home, disconnect. That's that's why I built my house quarter of a mile off the road. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I need that time away to recharge and uh you know, I think even in, in grief, that's something that people need to do. Like if, if you are a busy person that's just been in uh, the thick of things with everybody, friends, family, when grief occurs, sometimes you do have to disconnect and learn to recharge and uh, promote good self-care and, and really just become healthy once again. So, so Mary, I, I know, uh, we had talked just briefly uh, before we came on about a couple of losses that have occurred in your life. And 
you've lost your mother and father at this point. And I'm just curious if, if you would like to talk first about the life of your parents and who they were to you. So, yeah, so we had kind of a, a I'm not going to say unusual constellation in the family, but so my parents were married for, oh my gosh, I think I should have looked this up. By the time my mom passed away, they had been married for 56 years. Wow. So my brother was 11 when I was born and my sister was almost seven. So then I came along and it was really kind of funny because where my siblings were so much older than me, um, I was, I spent a lot of time with my parents. Mm -hmm. They were older. So they were out doing things, you know, with their friends or whatever. And I was at home with them a lot. And I remember when I took a class um, at ETSU, you know, about the, uh, the family constellation and like the characteristics of the oldest child, middle child, youngest child. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm absolutely not a youngest child. Like, you know, characteristically, my professor said, how old are your siblings? And I told him, he said, you're not a youngest child. You're an only. Mm -hmm. um, and so that made more sense because, you know, I did spend a lot of time with my parents. Well, anyway, um, they were just very matter of fact people. It's hilarious. My mother was so proud that I went and got my degree to be a counselor, but she would never have gone to a counselor uh, mm. ever. Um, but anyway, they were just really hardworking people. They very much were kind of like the strong, silent type. Um, we didn't do a lot of vacations and things when, you know, when I was younger, but, um, I don't know, we, we just had a really close, a close knit family. I think, you know, like I said, I spent more time, I guess with my, not really, cause my siblings are older than me. So technically they were around longer, but like more one-on-one -on -one time I spent with my parents and during my childhood, because my siblings, you know, had each other when they were growing up. So they were always getting into something. Uh, according to them. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of missed out on that, on all that. Um, but basically, you know, we just, I don't know, we just did the usual things. We celebrated holidays. Um, you know, we went to visit my grandmother lived in Butler, Tennessee in Johnson County. And so before she had moved uh, up to Virginia beach area, we would go up every weekend to visit my grandmother. It was my mom's mom. And, um, I don't know. We, it wasn't, it was a very unremarkable childhood, but it was very, it was a good, it was a good childhood. Um, you always say normal is subjective, right? But it was normal for you. And, uh, like you stated, unremarkable, that's, that's not a bad thing. You know, that's, um, a lot of people live these traumatic childhoods or, um, I don't know. I, I think I've seen things on, on both ends of the spectrum, but, uh, you know, it sounds like your your life was very much uh, a lot like mine, just normal for us, right? <laughs> it was, it was, and it was in the you know the seventies and eighties when I was little. So you know, like like we didn't in the summertime. My parents both worked, um, so they would go to work and they would leave me at home. And my brother and sister were older, so they were at work or you know whatever. And here I am, ten, eleven years old, all day by myself. I'd make myself stuff to eat. Like that was, that was normal too, though. Um, you know, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a CPS complaint to leave your child alone. Right. Um, right. Things were different then. Uh, latch key. We, I, you know, I, I remember in my fourth grade picture, uh, my mom used to put my key around my neck on a piece of lace. She had like a piece of lace and she would tie it around my neck. Not, not like a choker, but you know, like a long a long piece of lace and I tuck it down in my shirt because otherwise I'd lose my key and I would be locked out until anybody got home, um, which was usually like two hours after I got home from school. So, um, so in, in one of my school pictures, you can see that little piece of lace sticking out where I had my key around my neck. Mm. But um, yeah, it was, it was just very, you know, my mom did everything though. She could can, she could sew. Um, she was just amazing. You know, it, it definitely tells you the sign of the times, and it sounds like uh, you, you definitely grew up in the same time that I did, and kids had more responsibility then, but they accepted it more. It's now, I, I don't see that at all, but it 
sounds like more than anything, your parents trusted you, you know, to leave you alone, to let you in and out by yourself, to, you know, they could go off and, and make money for the family and, and know that you were okay. So it tells a lot about, you know, their thoughts of you and your character as well. Yeah, I definitely wasn't a kid. If they said, don't have anybody over, you know, I'm not going to have like a bunch of people over, or if they say, don't leave the house, you know, stay in the house. Um, Cause there were times when, uh, I mean, all the time we weren't supposed to go, or at least I wasn't supposed to go wandering around the neighborhood, you know, just stay in the house, stay in the yard. Right. Like I would go outside maybe on the porch or something, but I didn't like go run around the neighborhood because that was not something you know, that we were supposed to do. But anyway, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was very idyllic, I guess, in that regard, you know, you went outside and played, we were always at somebody's house. Um, but yeah, it was, it was all right. And my mom was like, oh, she had so much energy, but she was so happy in the morning. And I don't know if you're aware of it or not, I may have mentioned it a time or two. I am not a morning person. <laughs> I think I heard you say that before we started recording. <laughs> I absolutely did. I am not a morning person. And she was such a morning person. And I got an alarm clock when I was 11. Mm. So that I could set my own alarm and get up because she was so perky in the morning that it, I just started off on the wrong foot. And then she would say, well, I don't know why you're in such a bad mood. Because you're too perky, but you can't really say that to some, especially not my mother. But right, said, right. Because you're too perky, mom. You know, she would have. I asked her one time when I was in high school, though, I said, why are you always in such a good mood this early in the morning? And she was like, because nobody's made me mad yet. I was like, hmm. okay, that's fair. <laughs> you know, one thing I want to throw out there, I, I thought of a few minutes ago was, uh, you know, birth order and the way you, you speak about being an only child and, if there's anybody listening who's not familiar, I at least want to say, you know, there's there's some weight to the whole birth order thing from, uh, I think it was Alfred Adler years ago that that spoke of birth order. And I'm the middle boy between two girls, so I, I've always felt cursed. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when there is a large separation from, uh, you know, you said your, your brother was 11 and your sister was seven when you came along. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, there is quite a bit of gap there. Um, they're, they're kind of aging together and then little sis comes along. And, uh, so it is kind of like you're an only child in a lot of ways, even though, so you, you may take on traits of the baby or the, the only child. Um, but anyway, if, if anybody's interested, I think that's a really neat thing to, to look into. I, I definitely follow a lot of the traits that a middle child would have according to Adler. But uh, anyway, so as far as your mom and dad, um, how long were their lives? How, how long, how old were they when they passed? So my mom was 79 and my dad was 84. He died like he died about two weeks before his 85th birthday. Hmm. Now, did he pass first? No, my mom passed away first. Okay. How long has it been since your mom passed away? She died in 2013. Okay. And then your dad passed when? He died in 2019. Okay. Yeah. He died in May of 2019. Is his, he died on the 6th, and his birthday is the 17th. Hmm. So, yeah, it was like 11 days. Hmm. Well, let's let's speak first about your, your mom, if you'd like. Um, so, you know, obviously at that time you had both parents. What was it like when you lost your mom? Well, it was, it was very sudden, um, and I know that, I know sometimes people are like, well, I think people think that loss is different if it's sudden or if it takes longer. Right. Um, it's not. No. But so my mom died on a Sunday. 
she had started feeling sick. I think around Wednesday, um, not definably sick though. Um, I had seen her on the, fr on Friday that, that week, because that was my birthday mm. and she came over her, my dad, and she was just like, she just didn't look very well. And she looked kind of pale, but she said, she's like, well, I don't really feel too good. And I thought, you know, maybe she was coming down with something because my birthday's in January, you know, so, mm. excuse me. So people get colds and whatever. And my mom didn't have her spleen. You know, she lost her spleen many years before. So sometimes she was more, you know, I guess susceptible to getting sick. Sure. So she didn't feel well. Anyway, she saw, she started feeling unwell on like a Wednesday or Thursday. I saw her that Friday, Sunday, when I went to their house for dinner, my dad was in there cooking dinner. We always had Sunday dinner at like, you know, 1230 or something. And I got there and my mom was still in her pajamas and she was sitting in the living room. And if you knew my mother, she would put on lipstick and get dressed to go get the mail. You yeah. Know? You just so spoke her, about her being a morning person. So yeah. So her sitting there at noon in her pajamas just did what did not sit well. So yeah. anyway, I ended up calling an ambulance. Um, they took her to the ER and she passed. Hmm. Hmm. Did they determine what happened? So, yes. And, well, yes. She had a pulmonary embolism, hmm. which caused some sort of irregular heartbeat that I cannot remember the name of. There's a name for it. And she ended up, I guess... The embolism, I don't really know anything about those, but I guess it had been there for a few days mm. and it eventually went to her heart and caused, oh. you know, the, the irregular heartbeat. But that was just a shocking day. Um, it was, it was just so unexpected, you know, nobody was prepared. Um, but yeah. It, it was, it was something. Um, and just telling the family, cause you know, she really hadn't been sick. I mean, she had been not feeling well, but she hadn't been like seriously ill or so we thought. And so just to kind of be telling everybody like, yeah, you know, she's, she's gone. Um, that was, that was really shocking. I think to everybody. So I, I'm curious, like, was there difference in how everyone in your family grieved? You know, the fact that your brother and sister are a little bit older, you know, every child has a different relationship with each parent. Um, did you see differences in the way you grieved or did you have any, um, I want to say issues, but any differences in um, funeral arrangements or anything like that? Um, I went so I had agreed I think this is how this went my dad and I went to the funeral home I went with him to make the arrangements um my brother did not want to go and my sister I can't remember if she didn't want to go or if she just couldn't for some reason I don't remember that. I know that my dad and I went and we made the arrangements um, that Monday. She passed away on Sunday. We went Monday to the funeral home. And then, I don't know, I feel like my sister and I maybe like talked about it more, mm -hmm. like with each other. Um, and my brother didn't want to talk about it. That sounds familiar for a man <laughs> like we're not always in tune with our emotions and and sometimes i feel like women do handle situations like that a little bit better or it's um i don't know i, I guess each person's different but i i just feel that i've seen women taking charge in those situations more than men 
I don't know if it's that we're that closure is harder for us. Um, or if we're lazy, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I, I do see, I do see women taking charge in funeral arrangements a lot more. I want to say that it's just sometimes because, you know, of that old societal, like, you know, boys don't cry. Um, Very, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, yeah, you do. You can. Right. But yeah, we did that. And then her, we had to wait a few days to get the, to get her body released to the funeral home. Cause I think they did an autopsy mm -hmm. um, where she hadn't really been sick and she wasn't being treated for any, you know, like any really serious illnesses or anything. And so they went ahead and did an autopsy, but she was going to be buried at the VA. Um, so we had to also arrange that and they only do the funerals at certain times. Um, and we had to get that organized, but so it took, so it was like kind of like the whole week. I think her funeral was on, she died on Sunday and her funeral was on Thursday. Um, obviously we're several years removed. How has your grief process changed, I guess, with your mom, like versus, what, what did it feel like in the beginning versus where do you see yourself now? Oh, gosh. So at the beginning, this is going to seem, I don't know what, but. So she passed away on a Sunday. I took Monday off. Now, keep in mind, I could take as much time as I needed. That that wasn't the issue. Um but we typically are allowed three days, you know, bereavement leave. And then of course that's paid. And then you can take any additional time that you want. Mm -hmm. So I took that Monday off, which was one of my bereavement days. And then I went back to work Tuesday and Wednesday. And then Thursday I took off for the funeral and then Friday, the day after. And my supervisor was like, why are you coming into work? And I said, why would I want to sit at home? Like, I can't do anything at home, you know? So she was like, well, you don't, you know, you don't need to be here either. And so I, but I went to work for two days that week because I really just could not fathom just sitting at home, staring at the walls um, for a couple more days. And I still get emotional mm -hmm. talking about, it. but I think with, with my mom, I, I had this sadness but I didn't realize the long-term effects at the time. And what that was, was several months later, I was having all kinds of issues remembering things. Like I would be at work and somebody would be like, yeah, you need to do this thing. And I would say, okay. And immediately forget what it was just turn back to my work and forget what it was. And then I would be, you know, later on, they'd be like, Hey Mary, did you do this thing? And I was like, no, did you tell me to do that? Mm -hmm. And it really started to become problematic. Um, I really started having some issues like remembering things, um, issues. I lost a lot of weight. I lost a lot of weight in the, in about the six months after my mom died. Mm -hmm. And I think my, my sleep was okay then. Now, now I sleep for, ugh, my sleep's terrible, but it's just because I'm older. It has nothing to do with grieving. But at that time, I think my sleep was okay. My appetite was not great. My memory was all over the place. Like some days I do really well. And then other days I could literally forget something as you were telling it to me. Right. <laughs> it seemed like, um, so I didn't realize, you know, that it was still affecting me. Mm. Um, several months later. So that's something to think about, you know, when the initial grief is over, you're still going to have sometimes these memory issues or, you know, other issues that you didn't even think were going to be a thing. But I would say over the years, it's really more. Yeah, I just miss her. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think the the brain fog is is something very real in grief, you know, grief brain. And I think your mind is there's so much going on in the background of your mind, even though if you're at work and you're doing reports or talking to people or forgetting things like it's there's always something playing in the back of your mind. And you know, I think you you made a good point that you thought you were ready. Like, what am I going to do at home? There's nothing I can do here. I'm going on to work. And I think a lot of people feel that, you know, if, if I can stay busy, whether it's conscious or unconscious, you know, staying busy uh, is better in their mind. But um, I think jumping forward or or jumping over, that healing process or just giving yourself proper time to know that this does change forever. This changes my vision of relationship with my mother in this instance, you know, that's, um, it just changes so much. Um, if you could punch rewind and go back to that moment that those times in life, do you think you would have given yourself more time um, for the grieving process during the early days? During the early days, I, I did okay, I think. It was as the months went on that I was having more of the, like the memory issues and things like that. And okay. so I think that, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't, because staying home those few days, like the week of the funeral, mm -hmm. I don't know how helpful that would have been because the real issues that I was having actually started happening like two, three, four months later. Okay. Um, so I don't know that that would have been helpful. It might've made me look less, I don't know. The people at work were just like, why are you here? Mm. I'm like, I just can't sit at home. Um, but I think it would have been helpful to have maybe somebody come up to me when they noticed I was starting to have these issues and be like, Hey, you know, do you, what's going on here? Um, because it would have seemed like, Oh, it's been several months. This shouldn't still be happening. But in reality, that's actually when it really started happening for me. Yeah. There's a book that I mention often on this podcast that I've, it's one of my personal favorites when it comes to grief. It's by uh, Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, and it's called The Grieving Brain. And in that book, there's one study that uh, she was, the book itself is based around um, more scientific things about the brain than it is emotion. So there was one study in there about chimpanzees and how if they allowed a mother to grieve alone, it took her, you know, a couple of weeks before she would leave her deceased child. Whereas um, if they allowed other chimpanzees to come in and be there to assist, that she would walk away much quicker. I'd have to go back and read it, but it was like within two days, I think, and, and she was able to let go. I'm curious your thoughts on the grieving process and if we allow others to uh, minister to us, to allow us to, um, or, or to grieve with us or just simply be there for us. Do you think that changes the grieving process for you personally? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because I think when we, you know, when we, as, as a family, um, spent time together. I think that was very helpful. We had people coming by, you know, bringing food, you know, how, you know, how they do. Um, oh, yeah. all the food, but we didn't have to worry about cooking, which was, that's the purpose of it. But, you know, that was great. And just, you know, just even people at work saying, Hey, you know, are you doing okay? Um, I think that was, that was very helpful because you're not alone. Right. You know, at that point. But I think, I think that's really helpful uh, because then to, I don't know, to put kind of a, 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 an academic spin on it, if you, if you will, mm -hmm. you have, 
you know, we, you talked about grief and, and the grieving process. And so you have grief that is, you know, embraced, um, people support you and you have these, you know, rituals like the funeral and, and things like that. And then you have like the disenfranchised grief where you don't get that support. And oftentimes like the disenfranchised grief is like, um, I know in my, in my dissertation process, you know, some people who have addiction issues, uh, families who have family members with addiction and like the person passes from an overdose or something, it's kind of a disenfranchised grief because while they're grieving for their relative, other people would be like, well, you know, they had an addiction issue. So it's almost like it's not as grievable. Mm-hmm. To, to outside people. And so the family's like grieving for this person that they lost while knowing that other people think, you know, whatever they think about it. And so disenfranchised grief, I think could apply to if you're grieving alone um, because you feel like cut off from other people, even if that, you know, the person died from natural causes like my mom did. Um, it, it's different when you don't have anybody to rely on. Mm. That's a very good point and <clears throat> almost a timely one because I've had a lot of people recently uh, contact me that want to tell their story about a child that they have lost uh, due to a- addiction. In fact, uh, Kelly that I had interviewed yesterday who works in the grief field lost a son to some addictive issues. And um, so I-, I think it's it's a really good point that a lot of times if we can't connect with someone, then a lot of times we discount their feelings and that's, that's not good at all. Um, but very timely. And and I would love to ask more and maybe I'll, I'll try to circle back around at the end to talk about addiction and maybe you could help someone out there since uh, that's one of your specialties. Um, I'll just kind of mark that down and we'll, we'll, circle back here in a bit. Um, let's talk about your dad for just a moment. Tell me, um, so he passed, uh, five and a half, six years after your mom then. Is that yes. right? Okay. Yes. He, he was, um, he had developed COPD based on, he was, a, he was pretty much a lifelong smoker. And so he had quit, I think, for a little while, and then he had started back again. And it was really kind of humorous because evidently, when my daughter was in elementary school, he would go pick her up from school sometimes, and he would smoke in the car Mm. when he was picking her up or like before he picked her up. And then he would like swear her to secrecy not to tell mama. (laughs) that he was smoking and this is obviously before my mom passed away but um anyway he had he had had off and on with smoking or you know whatever but he had smoked pretty much since he was like 17 or 18 and so he developed copd and then in uh september of 2018 he uh, developed pneumonia really bad Mm. and he had to be in the hospital for eight days And they found out he had some heart issues along with the COPD. Um, And he spent eight days in the hospital, came out on oxygen. And then he passed away May of 2019. Hmm. So he was on oxygen for several months um, prior to passing away. But it was as a direct result of the... the, uh, You know, you were talking about... I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just saying it was, it's a direct result of the breathing issues and he had some heart issues as well. Yeah. Earlier in our conversation, you were talking about, um, I guess, expected grief versus uh, unexpected grief. And, you know, obviously your mother passed in a way that like, oh oh my goodness, we, we didn't even see this one coming with your father having been a, a long time smoker. Was it, um, was it any different in your grief process knowing that, okay, uh, he, he knew some of those life consequences for smoking or did you, did you think any different about that with your father? No, um, no, I, you know, he, the thing, the takeaway though, is having, you know, having lost one unexpectedly and then one kind of expectedly, Mm -hmm. 
there was no difference. Okay. But his, um, I don't know. It was, it was unexpected. It wasn't okay. So this is gonna sound weird. It wasn't completely unexpected, but like, I didn't expect it to happen at that time. That makes sense. It, because he was on oxygen, you know, he had all these heart medicines. He, he wasn't like in great health, but I did not expect it to happen when, exactly when it did. Yeah. So. Yeah. Grief is grief. And, uh, when you love someone, it doesn't matter, you know, like we stated, you know, whether it was an addiction issue, whether it was, uh, just a, an immediate health condition or a longer term health condition, when you love somebody, it, it just doesn't matter, you know, and when they're not here, it, it leaves this void in our lives. And it's not one that I would state, uh, can be filled, you know, there, there's always going to be a part of us missing, a part of our love story with the relationship of others that's missing. Um, tell me what life is like now. You know, I've spoken to several people on this podcast who have lost both parents. And, you know, the term I keep coming up against is orphan. And it's so weird to state that in older life, you know, I'm not stating that either of us are old, Mary, but, uh, you know, we think of an orphan as, you know, a six, seven year old kid that has no parents and, you know, maybe in the, the foster care system, but technically you're an orphan, right? You, you don't have either parent. How is that in your daily life now? I think it's, it's still difficult because there are just so many times and I apologize. Um, no, no. There are so many times when I think, oh, I want to tell my mom or I, I need to call my dad and mm. I can't, you know, I can't call them. Um, And that's difficult. That's very difficult. Yeah. And, you know, I have my siblings, which they are a mixed blessing. Um, I love them dearly. <laughs> uh, we're We're just so very different. Um, but you know, that we had this argument because my sister was like, well, now we're orphans. And my brother was mm. like, no, we're not. See, they, we, we even had that very same disagreement. Yeah. yeah. He, she was like, well, we don't have any parents. And he was like, well, no, but we're not orphans. And I'm like, that is literally the definition of an orphan is somebody <laughs> that doesn't have parents, you know, and, and my brother still disagrees. Um, I do have to tell you kind of a, it's not a funny story because but it's kind of humorous. So my dad was, is buried at mountain home and mm. my mother was as well. Well, we go down for his funeral and they only have them, like I said, at certain times. And we got the last one of the day that day. So there's a lady down there, and I do not know her name. And if she ever hears this, I appreciate her so much. I don't remember her name. She's uh, She works for the VA. And she's in charge of kind of making sure that the funerals run smoothly, you know. Mm -hmm. And so we started, they have like a pavilion down there. And they've got a place to put the, the casket. And they've got like little benches. And you can have like a grave. It's not really a graveside service because the grave is all the way on the other side of the cemetery. But anyway, that's where they do like the little graveside services. Right. And then they transport the coffin, you know, to the, to the, to the plot. Well, we were all there. She was there with her very official clipboard. It was the clipboard for me. Brad. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's bustling around with her clipboard, making sure that we're, you know, everything's going all right. We're all where we need to be. And then in the midst of the priest giving his blessing and saying the prayer, this horrible argument erupts somewhere in the cemetery. There are people down there evidently visiting someone else's grave that started a big cursing argument. Mm. Well, the first, the first few words, we all just kind of glanced at my sister and glanced at me and I glanced at her. We're just like, Oh, and so the lady heard it and she, um, 
took off around the shrub there and went. And a few minutes later, we didn't hear anymore. Hmm. It got completely quiet. But I thought, what, what in the world? Yeah. You know, what in the world? We're, we're down here having a funeral and these people are having this big, loud argument um, right around the corner there. But the lady, that's what made me laugh about the thing. Not She did a very good job, but she was just so irritated. And she and her clipboard took off. And that was the last we heard of those people. I don't know if she told them to leave or <laughs> if she threw them out herself. That That's... Uh... I don't know that that could lead us down a whole different path of conversation just for the fact that, um, you know, okay, this person was likely already buried and they, they've got family members or friends arguing at their grave, you know, here you're trying to have a funeral for a parent and, and they're being disruptive, whether they realized it or not, but it just shows you that arguments and things like that, still occur even after a person's death. And, you know, it's one of the most common arguments, I guess, is over things or money, you know. Um, but it's like, what what is worth going to someone's grave site and, and arguing over, um, as opposed to celebrating that person's life and who they were? I, I don't know. And you know, obviously this, these people probably had their reasons and who knows, we could speculate all day, but, uh, but yeah, it is good that, that someone there, uh, at that VA cemetery was able to settle that down so you could have your moment, you know? I mean, I would have stopped if I saw her coming around those bushes because she was on a mission, Like she was on a mission. She kind of looked around at us and then she looked over at them. We could, cause there's like a little hedge right there we couldn't mm -hmm. really see the people that were yelling but they were definitely yelling um but yeah i well and that's another and another thing too you know when i've seen people for counseling and they've had some grief issues and um you know i had one client years and years ago who had had been, had been put in a position to make a very difficult decision to withdraw life support uh from from a family member and then the family member of course passed because they had been given no, you know, hope that they would recover. And then the family who would, who refused to make the decision mm -hmm. left it to her. And then when she made the decision, they all turned on her. Oh, wow. Wow. And you know, she was having a hard time with that. And I've, I've told, you know, we, we discussed and I said, listen, people, and this happens, it's, ha it's happened. It's happened to me personally. It's happened to other people. I'm, I'm, I know because some of my clients have mentioned this, but it, people, will show the worst sides of themselves when they're grieving sometimes. Not everyone, but there are some times when the, just people really are not kind Yeah, when, when they're grieving and they really take things out on other family members or people that really don't deserve, you know, deserve it. Mm. So um, I guess that could be what was happening with those people at the VA, they, you know, maybe some, they were upset about their family member being, you know, deceased and were taking it on each other. I don't know. Um, but it, it was, it's something that I've seen over and over. It's, you know, people do not necessarily show their best side if they're grieving, especially like you said, fighting over things, fighting over property or, you know, items like who cares? Um, yeah, it doesn't, uh, none of that is worth the value of a life, period. That's that's hard. I, I've told my sisters, I'm like, when our parents pass, um, you can have it all. I'm not going to argue over it. Yeah, it's it, exactly. It doesn't bring anybody back. No. So how much of um, this, your losses now, like how much of that, influences how you deal with others that you counsel or just people that, uh, that, you know, out, out in life, like how knowing that you've gone through something that most people in this lifetime will face, especially losing a parent. Um, how, how does that help you? I think it's, 
it's helped me in understanding other people's grief, right? Having gone through it myself. Cause you, I mean, you can have a textbook understanding of something and not have an actual like visceral understanding of the thing. 100%. So yeah. I think that that's really helped me a lot in, you know, understanding people's grief and kind of what they're going through. But also even before I lost my parents, I just, I know that there's really no fixed set in stone timeline, you know, for grief. And so mm -hmm. the people would say, and this is 100%, it drives me to the point of distraction. People come in and they'll say, you know, I've had, when I worked with adults, you know, exclusively, I would have adults come in and say, you know, it's been however long since I lost whichever family member. And, you know, I'm still upset. I'm still grieving. They're telling me, well, you know, what, what, what they're doing, you know, how they're feeling. And, but, you know, my family says I should be over it by now. And I just want to jump up out of my chair and scream like, no, there is no timeline to be, oh, what is over it? Right. What right. does that even mean? Um, there is no timeline for that. You know, we can't say, well, you know, it's been exactly six months. So you should be done with this. It was close to six months after my mom passed that I was having all these memory issues mm. and, you know, and was still having issues with my appetite. So that there's no timeline. Um, and I think it's really important for people to recognize that, that there's not a defined timeline. You can't say, well, it's been X number of days or weeks or months and you should be over it. The converse is also true. If someone doesn't grieve as long as you think they should, that also doesn't mean that they weren't really grieving. Right. Yeah, I, I've seen that one especially, um, especially like when somebody moves on, say they've lost a spouse and, um, you know, maybe they start dating a little sooner than what others think they should. You know, it doesn't mean that they've not done their grieving. You know, I, I do caution people who've, gone through the loss of a spouse, you know, take some time for yourself. Don't immediately uh, just jump back out there to try to fill that void. But at the same time, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I knew of a person who um, was, I'll say, grieving their marriage while in their marriage for many, many years. And their spouse suddenly passed and this person was dating again several months afterwards. And uh, I checked in on this person and they're like, I know what you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me I'm dating too soon. And I'm like, mm, I'm sure that's what everybody else is telling you. But I know of the deep rooted issues that were in your marriage. You were grieving your marriage while you were in it. Mm -hmm. Um. I think the the biggest thing is knowing that each person has to do what's right for them. Um, you know, even beyond the, the spouse situation, like it, in the loss of whatever, if, if you see somebody out there doing well in life, I don't think that we should throw guilt on them and state, you know, it, it's only been a couple of months. Why are you, at a theme park, having fun with your kids, you should be home grieving your parents or, you know, I don't think that's a fair statement. And I think that's an archaic custom too, that, you know, when people were widowed that they waited at least a year, um, before they, you know, sought other relationships or got remarried. I, I think that that's, I have no proof of that. I have not done my own research on it, but I think that that's kind of an old custom. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't think it's applicable to everybody. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's, uh, you, you think about a lot of the lost art and, you know, I'm, I'm going to write that down. I think I would like to do, uh, an episode on the lost art of grieving. You know, I, I think the Victorian era was such a neat era, era, <clears throat> excuse me, with, um, with grieving, you know, some of the things they did. I don't know if you've ever seen the hair lockets. Have you ever seen those? I've heard of those. Oh my gosh. Like they would take uh, strands of a de deceased person's hair and make these 
beautiful pieces of art out of it. You know, to us today, it's like, oh, that's weird, you know, but <laughs> back then it was, it was custom and, you know, they, they would actually take pictures with the deceased person, um, you know, as if they were still living. Um, I can agree. Okay. That's, that is a little bit weird for me, at least because I'm not accustomed to it. Uh, you think even, um, you know, you go back and watch It's a Wonderful Life and they're wearing the black armband. I remember that back in the 70s and 80s when they did that. I, I mean, I'm um, at least the 80s, you know, I, but I remember people wearing the black armband, you know, as a sign of, hey, don't mess with me. I've lost somebody. I'm grieving. Um, I don't know. I I think I do want to do a whole episode on that. But well, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, because my mom, okay, my mom lived in Butler and they had a farm up on the mountain there. Mm -hmm. And it, we have a famous cemetery up there. And my grandfather, um, a lot of great grands and my uncles buried up there and so forth. Um, Oddly, my grandmother wanted to be buried at a different cemetery, but I, that's a whole different episode. I don't have any idea why that happened. Um, episode that was, two with Mary right there. That, that was her <laughs> wish. I don't, I don't know what happened there. But the family cemetery um, is my grandfather was buried there. And if I'm not mistaken, I think that they had his wake at their at the home. Mm. Like they set up the the uh, casket in like the living room and that's where they had the wake. I think again, I could be mistaken. I think that was customary in, in this area. It um, was years ago to have the wake at your home and have the person, you know, set up in your, you know, in your sitting room or whatever. So again, that's something we would say, Oh, we don't want to do that. It has to be at the funeral home. You know, that's where it needs to be. Um, we'll all come visit and then we'll go home. But uh, you know, I think that, that, that brings on a good point. I, I've got two things to say on that real quick. Um, one, I've got a good friend of mine who lives in a house that was built in the 1800s, and there has been at least two, if not three, funerals in that home over the years. And so absolutely, yes, it was custom in this area to do that. Um, funeral homes, I guess, uh, now take over for the most part on that. But I was talking to a pastor probably about, I don't know, uh, it was pre-COVID, maybe, uh, right at COVID, so maybe three, four years ago, and he stated that when a member of his church asks to do a funeral in the church, he said, I caution them, because if it may become a place of hurt that every time you walk in that door on Sunday morning, that now you recall your loved one's casket up at the front of the church. So it can become a place of hurt as opposed to a place of healing. And I wonder if that may be the case where people stop doing those viewings in their own homes too, because it would become a place of hurt. What are your thoughts on that? It very well could be. Um, it, it very well could be, you know, it, I see both sides of that. I can see like, oh, every time I walk in the living room, I, you know, I remember my loved one's casket being set up here, but then it also could have been the reason that they did it at the home was because that's maybe that's the person died at home. You know, sure. that's where they, that's, you know, that's where they did all the preparation. So I, I see it both ways, but I can definitely see that that might be problematic for the younger generation, not necessarily the older generation that was used to doing it that way, but maybe the younger generation who was like, I do not want to have the memory of, you know, grandma being, you know, viewed in the living room. Mm. That's, that's going to be too upsetting. So I, I just wonder when it's, I don't know, that's a whole different rabbit hole, but I wonder when, like, when did it stop? What, what, around what time was it because the laws changed? And you were no longer allowed to have a deceased person at the home. It had to be done in a funeral parlor. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I know there are rules and, and things like that as far as transportation and, and housing of a deceased person. 
Um, but I'm not sure what all those regulations and rules are. It would be interesting. I, maybe I'll, I'll find someone who, um, is in their nineties that, that I could speak with on what, what are the, the ways of old, like what customs were there? I don't know. That's, that's interesting. I, um, I, I think a lot has changed over the years and, and even how we perceive death, um, you know, I, I was talking to one gentleman on here before about, um, I, I think it was Bob, my uh, most recent male guest. They're so rare. <laughs> but uh, he was talking about, you know, how children need to be exposed to funerals and things of that nature. It's uh, so many times we try to uh, protect um, children from you know, those things. And, and then they grow up being scared as a, as opposed to just letting them see that this is part of life. I don't know. One of my clients, when I first started, I worked with kids for like the first five years um, that I was a counselor and then kind of went back and forth between things. And I've worked with kids a lot the last 10 years. Um, he, he was, he was a little, little, little guy, maybe five, six years old. And he had been told, and I think it was a grandparent, if I'm not mistaken, but it was somebody that he'd been close to. And he was told that he was not told that grandma died. Um, he, how they explained it to him was grandma went to sleep mm. and now she's in heaven. Well, the child would not sleep. Oh, he was wow. terrified. He, he, he would, he would not sleep. He was terrified to go to sleep because he thought if he went to sleep that he would go to heaven with grandma. Wow. Wow. So that's when I became a really big fan of explain grandma died. Like it's okay to say that mm -hmm. and explain to him whatever your, whatever your spiritual beliefs are about that. That's fine. But you must start it with grandma died. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to say she's in heaven or she's whatever, that's fine. But like, don't, please don't tell these children that grandma went to sleep and now she's gone because then you're going to have a lot of children who have sleeping issues because they're terrified to go to sleep because they think they're going to be with grandma. That's a fantastic point. And I'm going to put that one in my pocket because I, I think a lot of times, just like you're stating, okay, when we state uh, someone died, well, that's, that's factual. Um, when we start adding in other words, like, okay, they passed away. All right. We're, it's like, we're trying to file off the edges of this really rough surface that, you know, we're, I don't know. It, it's not, I don't know if people are trying to skirt around or trying not to offend, but, um, but I do see value in stating, yes, especially to a young child, grandma died. You know, if you said grandma passed away, that may lead on to other confusion or grandma's sleeping. Well, wow. Yeah. That I can see where that could lead to terrors for a child. That's, that's a great point, Mary. Well, I know we're closing in on our hour here. I, I can't thank you enough for being here. And, uh, as I state to, to many guests, you know, maybe we'll have to do an episode two Cause I feel like we just kind of, uh, just got into things, but, um, I'll give you two roads here and I'd like you to take both roads, but the first, um, I'll state is if you could give any, uh, help for those parents who have maybe lost a child to addiction and, and then I'll just kind of have you tie up things here at the end. And, and if there's anything that, uh, you think we've missed that you wanted to talk about, whether it's with your parents, with death, grief, whatever, um, I'll let you go down that road too. So what are your thoughts on the addiction piece? Well, as, as I was stating earlier, you know, there's the disenfranchised grief, um, of families who are grieving their loved one, but society looks down on the way that loved one died. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's very difficult and there is research cause you know, my, my dissertation was on, uh, grief and loss and return to use with medication-assisted treatment, uh, you know, in substance abuse treatment. And what we, of course, I had to pull five, you know, 
thousand it seemed it wasn't five thousand but articles you know about grief and loss and all the things and you know getting the background for my literature review and one of the articles I found was about the family members and siblings of people who had died from addiction issues and how basically they just felt shut out um by other people by medical professionals by police for example if maybe there was police response to the overdose um it's kind of like the family is looked at askance because this person you know died from from drug issues well you know we it's obviously first of all it's not helpful and it's also not accurate to blame the family um most of the families have done everything they can um, to get the person help. And if they also have their own addiction issues and maybe they were not able to help their loved one as much as they would have wanted to, that's still going to make them feel that it's their fault and it's not anyone's fault. Um, so we've got to separate the guilt from the grief. Because the the person who died had an addiction issue they struggled with. Mm -hmm. That's not a moral issue. <laughs> um, it is a, you know, a chronic relapsing disease of the brain. So we can't, we can't, but I feel like as, as a society, we, we often, we even see that in how treatment is offered. Um, you know, medications have been found to be helpful with substance use treatment, but oftentimes it's abstinence only is the only thing insurance will pay for. Um, that's almost a moral uh, response. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess for, for parents who are grieving, children who have been lost to addiction, find other parents who are also grieving their children that were lost to addiction because they will understand and not everybody will. Not everybody will understand, but also to fight through and say, hey, you know, this person is worthy of grief and is worthy of being remembered, not for their substance use, but for the person that they were. Right. You know, and yeah, so it's frustrating, I think. And I know the family members probably feel ostracized and, you know, or, or don't even want to talk about it. Um, oftentimes you'll read, you know, if people still do obituaries, uh, not everybody does, you know, but it'll say like this person died at their home mm -hmm. and they're like young and apparently healthy look, you know what I mean? And it's like, what is that code for? Right. Um, right. And my, my dad who, who had been in the, in the life insurance business, for many years when I was a kid, he would always read because he got into a habit of reading obituaries when he worked in insurance. It, I know this may be sound morbid, but in case any of his policyholders had passed. Sure. Um, you know, he he wanted to make sure to reach out to the family and whatever and get their, you know, get their insurance policy to them and all that. And uh, he would read that he's like, you know, died at their home. Hmm. 30. 32. Okay. Yeah. And so he would kind of make guesses as to what that was. And so, you know, I've seen obituaries that have said, you know, my son or daughter, you know, lost their fight with addiction. Right. Right. And there should be no guilt there, right? Like for a parent or, or a family member, you know, it's, we all go through different things in life and, um, their battle was their battle, right? It's, uh, we, we may have tried to help them through portions of that battle, but it was their battle. And I don't know, I, I see so many times people will come in, parents will come in, uh, grieving a child that has lost that battle with addiction and, you know, they feel guilty. Like what more could I have done? And, you know, so many times I see, really good care taken by parents and almost to the fact of enabling a child, you know, unknowingly. Um, but I, I know that they did a lot of their things out of love and, and I don't think that guilt piece should be there for, for most family members. Um, 
that that was their walk, you know, that person's walk um, through that battle. So find your people, definitely find your people, find other people who have lost uh, family members to addiction. Um, make sure that you have that support and don't, you know, if at all possible, don't let people disenfranchise your grief. That's right. If people were supportive of your grief, don't look to them for support, you know, recognize that they're not supportive and move, move towards people that are. Yeah. Well, Mary, any final words on, on grief and loss? Um, I, I really appreciate you being here today. Oh, thank you. Um, just, you know, to remember that every, everybody has to go at their own pace. You know, there is no timeline for this. Um, anniversaries are difficult. It's, yeah. it's, it's going to be hard sometimes and, and that's okay. Yeah. But I, I think that, you know, knowing that grief is a universal, um, kind of response mm -hmm. is, is helpful because, you know, you're not the only one that's going through it. Right. At any given time. Um, also just to remember that, you know, the good things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those memories, they carry on. And that's, uh, you know, when when we were talking about things and, and, you know, stuff that people argue over and, you know, those are physical things that have, you know, a time limit on them. You know, things, you know, go away. But memories are something that will always be there with us. And, uh, and I think we owe it to those who have passed to carry on those memories you know, the, the good things that, uh, we did. And, and that's what I hope I leave to my daughter and anybody else that's in my life. I hope that they have good memories of me. I don't have, uh, buckets of cash to give everybody, you know, when I pass, but, uh, I, I hope that they can, you know, recall one great thing that they did with me. So maybe that's, uh, what all of our goals should be just, to leave a good mark, to leave a good memory with those that we leave behind. Well, Mary, thanks again. Uh, I appreciate you being here and uh, maybe we'll have to do a round two down the road. So thanks again. Well, thank you for your, for your time and for inviting me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you again for joining us here at the Grief Observed podcast. If you want to be on the show, I'll have the uh, email in the show description. Uh, if you've connected with Mary's story, I'll also have her email in the show description. Um, I, I thank you for being here and hope you join us next time here on the Grief Observed Podcast.